Good morning. It, it looks different from up here. My goodness. Um, if you are already turned in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, let me ask you to keep your finger there and turn for just a moment to the book of Acts. Find Acts chapter 9. If you get there quickly and you're waiting and you have a moment, let me then encourage you to lift up your eyes and look around, even turn around if you want. Find someone you haven't seen in a little while. Even give them a wave if you want. This is, this is a day for us to celebrate. Uh, you might notice some faces that you do not... Is that the corporate wave? All right. You might notice, too, some faces that you don't know. We have had several uh, new faces among us in recent weeks. If you see someone like that, uh, pick them out and plan to go introduce yourself and, and meet them when we're finished this morning. Uh, the reason that I have you in the book of Acts here to start is because, again, this week, just like last week, Paul is continuing to walk us through some of his own history. And I think it helpful and wise for us to use this to, to, to just grow in our own sense of his timeline. So let's just quickly walk through some of what we've seen here um, in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11 uh, that Paul has walked us through in the first chapter of Galatians. Uh, we were in Acts 9 last week. You, you see as you're looking there that he was converted in this chapter. He is healed. He is baptized. Find verse 19. Just point you to a few places here as we're starting. Uh, in verse 19 we see that he spends some days at Damascus there with the uh, Christian community. We know from what he told us in Galatians 1 that there is also a trip into Arabia during that time and back to Damascus. He's studying the scriptures with opened eyes now. He's proclaiming in the, um, um, in the temple um, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you go down to verse 27, we've now jumped, we know from what Paul's told us, we've jumped three years now. Acts 9.27 is three years after his conversion. And he goes to Jerusalem in verse 27. This is what he told us about in our text last week. He goes to Jerusalem, he meets Peter and James. Barnabas is the one that takes him to meet them. Now look at verse 30. Where does he go in verse 30? You see, he's sent by the brothers up to the city of Tarsus in verse 30. Tarsus is in the region of Cilicia uh, that he mentioned last week. Luke now starts to talk about Peter for a little bit. So turn over to chapter 11, Acts 11:22. 11, what we find here is that some of those Christians in Jerusalem that had fled after Saul began his, his intense persecution there, some of them fled and returned to the city of Antioch. And a church has been born in Antioch and is growing. So the elders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to go to those brothers and sisters in Antioch to serve them, to teach them. And what we see in Acts 11.22 is that Barnabas, part of his plan for ministry there is he goes up to Tarsus and gets Paul and brings him down with him. And they spend an entire year, verse 25 tells us, serving together there in Antioch. So what we have here for Paul is we have Paul in the city of Damascus, then we have Paul in Tarsus, and then Paul in Antioch. This is a picture for us of his early life in Christian ministry. This is all before he even goes on his first missionary journey. We're getting a much better sense here in this piece of the timeline as to how, what his early years looked like as a Christian. 
We also can hear in that then when he told us last week that he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Uh, this is what he's talking about. Tarsus was in Cilicia and Antioch is in Syria. So that's the time that he's recounting. You can come back now into Galatians, into our text for this morning. Starting in the first verse of this chapter, we're going to be looking at Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10 this morning. Paul is now turning to the next mention of a visit back to Jerusalem. And you'll see in verse 1, he's talking now about something that happened, he says, 14 years later. Whether that's 14 years from his conversion, it could be that he's including some of the time he's been relating, or 14 years from his visit with Peter, the time before. It, 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 could, be, it could be either of those. Uh, but he's now going to tell us about the next interaction he has with those in Jerusalem. This one is a little bit harder for us to locate with complete certainty in, in the book of Acts. Uh, there's a lot of debate about when these events in the first 10 verses here, when did they happen in the book of Acts? Some people think that he's describing what happened at the end of Acts chapter 11. There is news there of a trip up to Jerusalem um, that, um, that Paul is a part of. Uh, other people think that, no, he's actually describing the events of Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, uh, when he goes through what we're about to read. And personally, I would really enjoy spending a lot of time this morning sifting through that debate because it's a very interesting one. There's a lot of good reasons why it could be one or the other. Um, but I don't think that's how the Lord would have us spend our corporate time together in His Word this morning. So we're, we're not going to spend time with that. If it's something that you enjoy wrestling with, like I do, you can ask me about it another time and we can think through some of whether we like chapter 11 or chapter 15 of Acts more for this. But we won't do that this morning. Now, there are more important matters for us to look at in our text here. In particular, there is a lot for us to, uh, to gain by seeing the tightrope walk that Paul is going to walk in these 10 verses. We're going to hear some things as we read here in just a moment. Um, we're going to hear Paul say some things about the apostles in Jerusalem that can sound to our ears to be almost disrespecting their authority, the authority that they possessed. That's not what he's doing at all. What he's actually doing, as we're going to see, is in fact he's giving us a model of walking between two very real errors, errors that he's dealing with, errors that we deal with in our own time as well. The first error would be the error of locating final authority in our human leaders, do that in a number of, of situations. In this case, even in the realm of the Christian church, are we not prone to that error of looking at the leaders in our church uh, that God has given and locating somehow final authority in the man? That's an error that he is going to guard against. The other error would be the error of a rebellious spirit that just does not regard God-given authority. Paul's going to walk between those two errors as he recounts the events uh, that he's telling us about in these verses. So let's read these before we go on. If you're able, please stand with me as I read God's Word. We'll be Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul continues in this way. Then after 14 years... 
I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for, him, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We can think about Paul's statements here in these 10 verses by distinguishing between two issues that he's dealing with. The main point that he's going to be giving us here in this text has to do with the gospel evaluation that he receives from the Jerusalem apostles. Now we're going to read about that in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 6 to 10. Now can you tell why this can be a little bit complicated to think through? Verses 1 to 2 and verses 6 to 10. This is the main uh, point that he's making here. In between there, you have verses 3 to 5. And in verses 3 to 5, he brings up another issue that is related. It's the issue of Titus and circumcision. That's what we see in, in those ones. So as we walk through verses 1 to 10, we'll break it into two pieces, although the break is not as neat as we would normally like it to be. So let's look at first at the main issue at hand, which is the, the matter of the Jerusalem apostles and their evaluation of his gospel message. Let me reread just verses 1 and 2 to begin. Look with me there. Then after 14 years, he says, I, w I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And we'll stop there for a moment. You see him setting the scene for us in verse 1. He tells us that he went to Jerusalem, and with him, in particular, were two men, Barnabas and Titus. There's good reason for him to mention each of them here. Barnabas is important because it seems that the Galatians that he's writing to knew Barnabas already. This is a point of contact with his, with his hearers to mention Barnabas' presence. The fact that they know Barnabas is even more obvious later in verse 13, because he writes there, he's, he's talking, we'll see this next week, about Peter, when Peter came up to Antioch with them, and his hypocrisy. 
And he says, so impress, so, so impactful was this hypocrisy that he says in verse 13, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, why would he put it that way? You say, even Barnabas was led astray. If, you, if your audience knows Barnabas, if he has a reputation with them, so that they know it's surprising that Barnabas was led astray. So it's clear that his hearers know who Barnabas is. Titus is mentioned because he's going to be the center of the events that Paul's about to recount in verses 3 to 5. He himself will be a case study for all of the outcome of what's happening here with the Jerusalem apostles. We'll come back to him later. But with verse 1 dealt with what we have remaining here in this first piece, we have verse 2 and verses 6 to 10. This is where he talks about the relationship that exists between him and himself and the Jerusalem apostles. When it comes to those apostles in Jerusalem, there are a couple of points that he makes very clear about them. And it's very important for us to see both of these points together before we draw any conclusions. The first point he makes is the one, to me at least, if it, maybe you hear it like I do, I, I find this first point to sound a little bit surprising to my ears. He, he says something about them three times. Verse 2, he says, He set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential. Then he says it again in verse 6, And from those who seemed to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. And then he does it again in verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars. So the question can come up for us. What, is, what point is he making with this idea of seemed to? There can be some baggage with that word. At least for me, I can hear that uh, that statement, they seemed to be influential, and I can hear it in a way that hears Paul to be casting doubt on their right influence. They only seem to be influential. They only seem to be pillars. If, that's, if you hear it like that too, then let me invite you to join me. We need to fight against that hearing of his words. That is not his intention here at all. There's not even a word for seemed in what he writes here. This is a problem of, uh, of our trying to render his point. What he's doing is much more simple than that. He's making an observation about the reality of their esteem and their reputation. So other versions translate it differently. They just say, um, instead of seemed influential, they say things like of reputation or recognized as leaders. That's all he's doing. He's acknowledging the recognition that they have in the place that they occupy in God's church. You also have his comment that we just read in verse 6. Look there again. He said, he said in verse 6, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. If I'm already thinking of seemed in a bad way, that statement in verse 6 can push me farther down that road. But it does not need to. We have to begin, we have to again be careful not to read into this things that are not actually there. The point he's making in verse 6 about the other apostles is that they do not represent the authority in his present role. And think about how obviously true and important it would be for Paul the apostle to say that. We've already been through the first chapter. We know the objections, the opposition he's dealing with. 
the, the mischaracterizations that he is, uh, he is dismissing. It's important that he make these statements that the other apostles are not the authority over him in his apostolic function. God is the authority over him in this function. He is operating on the basis of a divinely ordained and commissioned apostolic office, just as they were. So, understand here, the first point he's making is that of recognizing the authority, the reputation that they rightly possessed, these apostles in Jerusalem, even as he is clarifying that they do not stand over him in his role as a position of authority. They are on equal footing. They are all apostles of the risen Lord, commissioned by Christ himself. It's the first thing we need to see him to be clarifying about these apostles and his relationship to them. The second thing that we need to take along with that as well, notice that he points out how they, just like he is, they too are likewise submitted to the gospel message as their authority. You can see that. Look at verse 7. Notice what Paul says they base their conclusions on in his case. How do they wind up judging here uh, how to think about and participate with Paul? Verse 7, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and look at the aside here, for he who worked through Peter in his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So he says, he's saying here, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, just as Peter had, here's how that finishes, and when they, you see verse 9, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of, they gave the right hand of fellowship to us. How were these apostles operating? The moment they recognized the presence of the true gospel at work in Paul's ministry, the moment they heard of the commissioning by Christ himself of this man as he traveled to Damascus, and they sense the purity of his gospel going out to the Gentile nations, they fall right into lockstep with Paul. They do not bend their knee and submit themselves to Paul. He doesn't bend his knee and submit himself to them. Uh, they, they fall in together. They join the right hand of fellowship with one another, not one beneath the other. And not in a way, notice, that misunderstood the differences in their callings. Their callings were not exactly the same, even as apostles. The Lord had clearly made the Gentiles Paul's primary sphere of ministry. Not his only sphere. He ministered to plenty of Jews as well. But his primary sphere of ministry was to the Gentiles. And he had clearly made the Jews the primary sphere of ministry for these pillars, as he says in verse 9. But while there were distinctions in their roles as apostles... They were all common servants of the gospel, and they were equally given authority by Christ as his apostles. And what we saw in verses 7 to 9 is that what guided the Jerusalem apostles to judge that, to judge that they were joined in this common bond that should formally unite, what guided them to judge that was that they recognized the true gospel at work in Paul and being delivered by Paul. The gospel, verse 7, having been entrusted to him, by Christ himself. That is the source of the authority for all of them. 
So can you see here, Paul is not at all denigrating the authority or the role of the Jerusalem apostles. Not even their own unique role compared to his. He still has great passion and compassion for the Jewish community and for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in particular. Those, verse 10, when, when they ask him to remember the poor, they're speaking about the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, this very needy group in this first century. They ask him to remember them, and he's already eager to serve them. He's very on board with their mission and ready to partner with them. So he's not denigrating their role. What he's doing is making clear their equal authority. They're equal standing in the economy of Christ with his own. And he's grounding all of that for them and for him. Uh, all of that authority that they possess only exists by virtue of Jesus' gracious entrusting of them to this role. That's the conclusion that we draw from his recounting here of the interaction in Jerusalem. And you can see how that fosters the argument he is giving in the entire letter here thus far to combat his opponents. He did not go to Jerusalem and sit underneath them and receive teaching from them and twist that to his own self-serving ends. He is not under them at all. And when he interacted with them and they heard his message, they joined the right hand of fellowship with him. They added nothing to him. That is to say, they saw no need to add anything to his pure gospel message. The last thing we need to consider before we shift to verses 3 to 5 and talk about Titus and circumcision is we need to notice the statement he makes in verse 2 because this is another place that can be tricky for us to understand. Look at verse 2. He says that he set his gospel before these Jerusalem apostles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Is Paul confessing here doubts about the legitimacy of his gospel? Are we to understand that he has now spent 10 plus years preaching a gospel in these areas, but he's secretly been in great suspense and wondered if his gospel was legitimate? So now he finally gets the chance to come lay it before the Jerusalem apostles to find out if he's been bringing a, an impure... Is that the sense that we have here? I hope you can tell that such an interpretation is completely missing his point. It's easy to tell, if only because that would have contradicted his entire argument up to this point in his letter. Paul has no doubts at all about his gospel. He has now been shown the whole of the scriptures through the lens of Christ by a revelation of Christ himself. He is not someone in any doubt as to the truth and purity of his message. So what does he mean in verse 2 here about running in vain? He presented this to them in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What's his point here? Well, I, for sake of time, I thought I would just suffice it to share with you a quote that, uh, that one commentator gives about this. Tom Schreiner writes about this question very helpfully. And here's what he said. Paul addresses the issue from a pragmatic standpoint here. He considers the practical ramifications that would follow if the apostles disagreed with him. The truth of his gospel would not be affected by the decision of the apostles, for Paul's gospel was authoritative regardless of what the apostles said, since it was revealed to him by God himself. Nevertheless, if the pillar apostles sent out an edict declaring Paul's gospel was untrue, 
then his efforts in ministry would be practically nullified. Can you tell how obviously true that is? As they're going around, they're going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. There is an entire Jewish context to this declaration of Christ as the Messiah. If the Jewish apostles hear what he is preaching and denounce him, his ability to be heard and considered and followed in this gospel that he's been entrusted with, it's going to be some big practical problems in his ministry. We have to remember the timing that we're peering into here in church history. Now, all of this is pertaining to a particular gospel issue. What do we do with these Gentiles that are suddenly coming in to the church? We didn't see this coming. How does this affect things? Uh, this is new to them at this point, and they're in the process of working it out. And Paul's opponents were self-proclaimed Christians claiming to be true representatives of the Jerusalem apostles, going around making these demands about circumcision and following the law of Moses. How could they possibly have gotten away with that, of claiming to represent the true apostles? Well, it's because there was a time in that early generation when the practical matters of how Gentile converts should live hadn't yet been addressed. Let me remind you of the outcome of this Resolution, And this, is, this is, is the case, whether or not Paul is describing here in verses 1 to 10, whether or not he's describing the, um, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, or whether he's talking about a private conversation that preceded that council. It could be that as well. But either way, uh, we have news of the outcome of this resolution by looking into Acts chapter 15. The, these apostles in Jerusalem, wind up sending Paul back to Antioch with a letter to the Gentile Christians there. Turn with me for just a moment back again to Acts. Go to Acts 15 this time. This is, I think, very helpful to understand th hard things like why there, would be, why there could be a time where Paul would wonder if the Jerusalem apostles were going to confirm his message or not. It's hard for us to think about this interim time period. Look at verse 5, Acts 15, 5. This shows us what precipitated these events. See if any of this sounds familiar to what we're seeing in Galatians. Acts 15, 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now stop there. So here's this moment where they're being confronted with a claim. Gentile Christians need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And there is not an immediate reply. There is a need to, see, to search the scriptures and to, to counsel together. You see this? And they consider it. It's what they do. And when they're done considering it, they send Paul and a small group back to Antioch where he had come from, with the letter of verses 23 to 29. Acts 15, 23. Here's the letter that they send back. It's amazing to me that we have record of these things in the book of Acts. This is so helpful. It's as if God himself were guiding us and giving us the book of Acts and giving us the information that we need to see. The, um, of course, that's exactly what's happening, isn't it? He's giving us what we need to know. Acts 15, 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, 
to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Look at verse 24 in particular. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from, se and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. There's the letter that they send back. Now notice, they're writing, they're not writing to the Galatians here, they're writing to Christians in Antioch and the surrounding areas. But can you see, they're writing about the same issue that Paul is confronting in Galatia, much further to the north and the west. This, the letter that we have to the Galatians is Paul doing the same thing that these apostles did for his brothers and sisters in Antioch. He's informing them that these men who have come representing the Jerusalem apostles, claiming that, they don't represent them. In fact, they've already been formally rejected by those apostles. News just hasn't gotten here yet, but here's my letter to you informing you of what's been going on. So again, you can see how effective Paul is here as he recounts the way his gospel to the Gentiles is evaluated and received by the other apostles. All of this falls in place so well in terms of the history of, of this early church who is, who is by being guided by the Holy Spirit, coming to understand what has been called the mystery of Christ. Jew, Gentile, we're going to get into this later in the letter. This is, this is big and has required a great deal of careful thought and study for them. And Paul is leading the way in this charge. Let's look now and turn our attention to verses 3 to 5. In turning there, we're, we're moving to what you could call the sub-matter of this passage. I don't mean sub in the sense of less important, not at all. But I mean this matter is itself something of a case study example within the entire issue that we've been talking about. Look with me again at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, we, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now that we've seen how the Galatians situation mirrors the situation that the apostles already clarified in Acts 15, maybe you can see the effect that his words in verse 4 would have had. Uh, if, if those apostles, in the events he's recounting, if those, um, if those uh, not apostles, excuse me, if those teachers wound up uh, being called false brothers, what does that say about Paul's opponents in Galatia that he is confronting? There's immediate application here in the minds of his original hearers. Now, verses 3 to 5 mark the first time in the letter that Paul brings up the matter of circumcision. 
We've gone through chapter 1. He doesn't mention it once there. And this is extremely important. You know, in, now that he hasn't mentioned it at all in chapter 1, in the remaining five chapters, he's going to, raise the, he's going to bring up circumcision 13 times. This is a very important matter and point of application for what he is telling us about life in the old and life in the new, now that Christ has come. But what he says here, though, you can see how it serves to really further confirm everything he has said so far. Titus' status, it says in verse 3, though he was a Greek, it's just a reference to his Gentile status. Titus' status as a Gentile had come up in the midst of this meeting. As they came to Jerusalem, they began to consider the gospel that Paul is preaching. And an objection is raised concerning this Gentile who is with him and his need to be circumcised. Paul blames the confrontation on what he calls false brothers. All of this is language out of verse 4 there. They're false brothers who object. These are people who do not truly belong in this gathering of Christians. They had snuck in. They had slipped in to spy on us. They are the reason, he says, that this issue had come up. And he says quite emphatically here, he's speaking of himself and his group. He says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. You might be able to see why he would need to make that clear. There are a lot of situations that we can be in, aren't there? That confrontation, confusion arises, and maybe there is a wisdom occasion to accommodate to that, to be patient with that in some circumstances. Paul says, this was not one of those circumstances. We did not for a moment yield in submission to them. And the reason that he didn't was because he knew what was at stake. If they accommodated this insistence that the circumcision should be required, if they gave to that a little bit as an accommodation, this would be nothing less than a return to slavery, he says in verse 4. If he accommodates to this notion that circumcision should be required, he knew what would happen. This would begin to serve as an example to justify forcing other Gentiles to do the same thing. And all of a sudden now, an unnecessary hindrance to the gospel would be set up. This is what he's saying in verse 5. When he says that they did this, he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For the other Gentiles, like those among you, Galatia, it was for your sake that we did not yield even for a moment. And just notice that he says what was at stake there was the truth of the gospel. We've talked about this in weeks past. If the gospel is the, de the declared message of the sufficiency of Christ in his life and death and resurrection alone to rescue sinners, if that's the message of the gospel and you add to it, you are departing from it. We've seen this in many uh, of the statements he made in chapter 1. In the weeks to come, we'll, we'll continue to be talking at length and in much more detail about the idea he raises here of slavery. When he calls this a return to slavery, he'll bring up the idea of slavery eight more times before we're done with this letter. What he does with it here, though, simply makes it plain. What the Judaizers wanted was an enslavement when they want to reject the, what he calls the freedom that we have in Christ. They came to spy out this freedom that they are suspicious of. 
And we should note that this was part of the meeting being led by the Jerusalem apostles, right? Paul had set before them his message to hear their evaluation in verse 2. They are the ones chairing this meeting. So for Titus to be not judged needed to be circumcised means that the Jerusalem apostles also are implicated in this decision not to require it. So really we've seen in the main in these 10 verses two big ideas. Let's take a few minutes here to draw all of this to a conclusion. What are we taking away ourselves this morning from Paul's words in this text? I would suggest two things in particular that I pray will be on our minds and in our mouths as we go from here, as we're having lunch with our family in the week to come in our work week. I, I, I hope that these considerations will be something for us to chew on. Here's the first one. Paul's attitude toward the Jerusalem apostles is really helpful for us. I mean, very instructive. It's a tremendous example. He recognizes, think about this, even in coming to hear their evaluation of his gospel, but knowing the truth of it, he recognizes the possibility for them to be fallible as men in their living and application of their of the gospel. That does not mean that they're fallible in the penning of Scripture or anything like that. He recognizes these men, even in the authority they possess, to be men who can make mistakes. And he'll tell us about one next week when Peter it comes up to visit in Antioch, makes a big mistake, a gospel-relevant, gospel application mistake. So even in the way he comes and presents this to them, and the way he speaks of it, we get this example that final authority is located in the gospel and not in any human being. Now, he also recognizes, as we've seen, their right possession of the authority that is theirs and of the reputation that is theirs as apostles. So here's what we see. In other words, he is able to respect the office while abstaining from venerating the man. That's a hugely valuable distinction for us to be able to have in our minds. Think about what that means for us. It means things for us in a number of spheres, even in the political sphere and elsewhere. But in terms of our, our Christian faith and the leaders that God has given to His people, this means that we can love the leaders God has given us without worshiping them. It means that we can... Uh, see them make mistakes and not despise them for their, for their faults. Or have our faith shaken when we see faults and mistakes. Because we all stumble in many ways, as James 3.2 tells us, including the leaders that God has given to His people. We are very much freed up if we're able to have this distinction in our minds. Properly honoring the office that God gives in authority, whatever office that may be, while not improperly venerating the man, the human. We have to work to find that balance. And Paul helps us here with his own example. And I, just, it, I think it's a timely one for us in an age of rampant man worship and an age of rampant rejection of God-given authority. We see the pictures of the fall-off on both sides of this path that we must walk. It's the first line of thought that we can take very easily away from these verses. The second has to do with the idea he's now raised of freedom and slavery. 
for Paul, to live a life of freedom is to seek to be justified before God by faith in his son. He's going to tell us to seek to be justified in his sight through our own works and efforts. This is slavery. We're seeking a kind of freedom, and in seeking it down this path, it's the path of slavery. This is not a path that frees me from the dominion of sin. I am still enslaved to sin. If I'm seeking my justification through my own efforts and labors, instead of with humble, empty hands, asking the Lord for mercy through the name of His Son. I choose another path. I'm still enslaved to sin. I've not been brought from death to life. To this end, Paul will say in verse 16 of this chapter, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. And I hope that in the weeks to come, that I hope that we will beat this drum until we cannot, <clears throat> until we cannot get the rhythm out of our heads. What Christ has done for His people is to give us rest from our weariness. He has beckoned us not to bring the right, proper goods to Him for a transaction. He has beckoned us to come weary and heavy laden, to repent of this self-centered, self-glorifying life of, of, of self-justification and the discouragement and disillusionment that comes with it, to repent of that and to turn in faith to Him. We do that casting the burdens of our inadequacies, our failures, our sins upon Him. And this is what freedom is. Hear again the words of Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. This is beckoning, even from an Old Testament prophet, looking ahead to what God will do in the Messiah. And here's what he says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. <coughs> Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And we, on the other side of what God has accomplished, we know exactly what he's talking about. All of this free coming and finding sustenance, finding satisfaction, it comes in a particular covenantal context. It comes in the context of the everlasting new covenant that is inaugurated by the shed blood of Christ. So that Paul will tell us for weeks to come now as we study Galatians, the new has come. Put off the old, cling to the new. All of which is found for us in the context of fidelity and love of Christ. So it's for us to consider this morning. God has brought us together this morning, studying this text, he's bringing it to our attention. What is it that you this morning are holding back from laying at the feet of your Savior? Well, 
what burden of lingering guilt or shame keeps you from enjoying the life of freedom that Christ has purchased with his own blood? What pattern of sin have you given up in your battle against because you have not believed that Christ's death sets us free from the power and the penalty of sin so that we do not have, we are not enslaved to our sin. We can battle and by the timing and power and sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, we can conquer. What have you not yet brought to the feet of the cross? Was his blood not enough to purchase your freedom? If it was, then we must remember that Paul's words later in this chapter are our words as well. They are your words this morning. If you are clinging to the righteousness, the alien righteousness of Christ, you have been crucified with Christ. And the life which you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The spy in our passage, the false brother, is the one who hears that and says, that's not enough, not, not in my case. But we who are the people of God are those who respond to those beckonings of Isaiah 55, who have come to the everlasting covenant of Christ. And we have come very intentionally, very consciously, without money, only with our need. And we have eaten, and we have been satisfied. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are steadily amazed as you continue to lay before us the sufficiency of the work of your Son. Help us this morning. God, we thank you for all of the ways you have blessed, are blessing us even now in our fellowship and our opportunity to sing to you, to pray to you together. Lord, we continue to confess our deep need every moment for your spirit. So we ask, Father, help us this morning, this week. Help us to live our lives on the solid rock and not on shifting sand. This is what you have done for your people in Christ. And we know with great certainty, we rejoice with confidence that he who began a good work in us will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we worship you for the truth that you've given us this morning. I do pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who still are not able to be with us this morning. There are many who are traveling. There are some who are not, and they cannot yet be with us. Father, draw near to them. Help them to sense, even now, our love for them. And we pray that in your perfect timing that you would bring them back to us. We pray that it would happen soon. All this we lift before your throne of grace, Father, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me for our benediction this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Go from here with this blessing from our Lord. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We are dismissed. Go in his peace.